0: Welcome to Timberlake Church. It's good to have you. If you're watching online, we're so glad that you're, you're joining us from the comforts of wherever you are. And welcome to the Redmond campus. So good to be with you. My name is Carlos. I'm one of the pastors here. And I've been given the charge of bringing the message this weekend as we are continuing our series called Fearless, hence the t-shirt that you might have seen not only up here but uh, around the campus. Uh, we, we want you to know that, that as a church, we feel like we're in a season to address some of the things happening in our life head on. And that really came from our creative pastor, Pastor Chris, that tall, beautiful man with the bald, that bald head that stands up here sometimes. And uh, he came to Ben and the, and the leadership team was just like, hey, I really feel this is this where we should go. In the Easter season, he was talking about fearless, and the times in Scripture where you hear somebody having this encounter with God, and they're told, fear not. Do not walk in fear. And so, this week, we're going to dive into uh, the, the, next, the next weekend. By the way, the first few weeks have been incredible. I encourage you to go back and watch those if you have not already listened to those. Uh, but this week, we're going to talk about fearless obedience. What does it mean to be obedient uh, and to be fearless? And so, uh, I, I want you to know that as a dad, one of the struggles I have is whenever my kids are afraid of something. I don't know if other dads are like this or moms, but when my kids are afraid of something, something actually just rises up within me, and I want to make them do it, right? I I just don't want them to be afraid. I don't want them to miss out on life. I don't want them to miss out on opportunities. Um, From the time they're little, I tell my kids, you can go to college anywhere. You don't have to be close to home, and my wife is crying in the corner. No, tell them to stay home, you know? And I'm like, no, they can go anywhere because I want them to be fearless. And, And a few years back, my son knows I love roller coasters. I love roller coasters. And he said, Dad, I don't like roller coasters. I'm never going to ride one. I was like, over my dead body, you're not going to ride one. I was like, how about I buy you the newest PlayStation that comes out? He's like, "Oh, okay. I'm like, hey, a little bribery never hurt anybody. And so we go to the, the amusement park, and I say, son, you're going to have all day. By the time the lines happen, it's going to take us all day. You can kind of recoup from the ride, whatever that means. And, and so we show up, and nobody else shows up to the park that day. So we rode all the rides in two hours. Not knowing that my son was going to have vertigo at the end of it and throw up everywhere. But guess what? He got over his fear. And he looks at me he's like, Dad, that was awesome. I'm so glad you made me do that. It's a great dad moment. A few months later, my daughter, she was about 9 or 10 years old. We're on vacation at this lake house. And there's this 40-foot cliff. And we're we're walking. I said, you see that cliff? Yeah, we're going to jump that. No, I'm not. Oh, yes, you are. No, I'm not. I'll give you 50 bucks. I'm jumping, Dad. Kids are doing anything for money nowadays, right? She jumps a 40-foot cliff. She's so excited. She gets back to the house and tells my wife. My wife is so mad at me. One, because I bribed the kid. And two, I made her, by nine-year-old, jump a 40-foot cliff. But as a dad, I don't want the people in my house to be afraid of things. There's too much in life to be afraid of, and then it stifles us. And can you imagine God the Father? who was wooing us and calling us into this great adventure called faith, and some of us get so stifled in our fear that we're not actually enjoying the journey that God has called us on. As a kid, my dad, being a pastor, would tell me, uh, Son, obedience is better than sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15. And NIV says this, To obey is better than sacrifice. My dad would use that against me. It's better to obey, better to obey, better to obey. But here's the context of that. In in, in 1 Samuel 15, you have King Saul, who's the first king of Israel. And God didn't want a king, God wanted to be the king. But the people in their human nature said, We need somebody we can see, somebody tangible to lead us. So God picks a man who's tall, strong, good looking, and he says, Here's the deal. You get all of the riches, you get all of the perks of being king. All I'm asking you to do is be obedient to the things I tell you to do. I know some of us struggle with obedience because it's like a rule thing. But it had nothing to do with the rules. It had to do with this relationship between God and Saul. He says, you can have everything. I just need you to lead well. And there are going to be a few things I ask you to do, and I just need you to do those. And when you do those, you'll get the benefits of obedience. 1 Samuel 15, the prophet Samuel comes to King Saul after God gave Saul some very clear direction. And Saul did not listen to the directions. He was disobedient. And Samuel comes to him in chapter 15. He says, God regrets making you king because of your disobedience. And you know what Saul's response was? Wait, wait, wait. You don't understand, Samuel. You and God don't get it. Like, I went to where you told me to go. But instead of leaving everything where it was, I brought back the riches. I brought back the cattle. I brought back all of the good things. See, see, what happened was I intended to take all of the extra stuff that God never told me to get, and I was going to give it to God anyway. See? See? Isn't God proud of me? And Samuel was like, no. Because it's an act of disobedience. And to obey is better than to sacrifice. What does he mean? To sacrifice the riches you thought were important in your own eyes. Can you imagine the next time you miss a a kid's soccer game or recital? The next time something like that happens and you go to your kid who's 8 or 9 years old and say, Hey, I'm so sorry I wasn't here. But do you know that me not being here, daddy made an extra $10,000. Aren't you proud of me? Your kid's not going to be like, yeah, great. Because you missed the moment. Because what was important in your eyes or my eyes or what was important for your own job that you had to do isn't always important. It doesn't transfer to the other person that we are in relationship with. And how many times do we go before God and say, God, help me close this deal. I promise God I don't tithe, I don't give, but if I close this deal, I'll give the church a little bit. Then you get a little bit and you're like, oh, the church doesn't need that much. (laughs) Change my mind. And we make these deals all the time. And then we take them back because we do what's right in our own eyes. And obedience is about relationship and caring for the other person enough to want to do what's right. So what we're going to do is we're going to dive into Luke chapter 1. As we get ready in the Easter season, get the precursor for Jesus. And we're going to do this character comparison between two women in Luke chapter 1 who are vital to Jesus' life and ministry. In Luke chapter 1, we have the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are married, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, which we're not going to read it because it's a long chapter, so I'm going to do a, a brief synopsis of it, and then we're going to get through with a little bit of Scripture, because I want you to understand the depth of what's happening in Luke chapter 1. So Zechariah, who's a priest, is married to Elizabeth, and uh, the angel Gabriel shows up to him, and like, the same fashion everybody else, when something extraterrestrial enters the room, the first thing they say is, do not be afraid. And sometimes when they're saying that, they're not just saying, don't be afraid in the moment. You have this bright light shining in front of you. They're also saying, don't be afraid of what I'm about to ask you to do that's bigger than you. So Zechariah has this moment with Gabriel. And Gabriel tells him, "I know you're advanced in years. I know your wife is beyond childbearing years, and you have no children. But God has saw you righteous and faithful, and you're going to be a dad, and Elizabeth's going to be a mom." And Gabriel couldn't. Um, Zechariah couldn't believe it, so he questioned Gabriel, and Gabriel said, "You know what? From now on, you're going to be mute. You're going to be mute till the baby comes." And some of the women in the room are thinking, "Gosh, it'd have been great if my husband was mute my whole pregnancy." That would have been awesome. And he couldn't talk anymore. And Elizabeth carries out the pregnancy. And it's amazing. We're going to dive into the story there. A few verses later, you have Mary, who has the same encounter with Gabriel. And Gabriel tells her, you're going to be a mother. You're not married yet. You're a virgin, but you're going to carry the Savior of the world. And Mary freaks out, and she leaves home. And she goes to visit Elizabeth, that we just talked about, because they're cousins. These two women are cousins. And she goes there, and she stays with Elizabeth for three months. Just like some of the women were like, man, it would have been great if my husband were mute for nine months. Can you imagine, man, your wife gets pregnant, she goes to live with family for three months? I just could not imagine my wife doing that. But that's what happened in the story. And so then, from there on, they, they have this, this encounter in Luke chapter 1. And now what we're going to do is we're going we're to talk about how these two women's stories are parallel in Luke chapter 1, and what does that mean for us. So again, take out your notes. They're right there on the app. Pull up your app or right there with the physical notes in the program. And we're going to compare these two women. On the left is Elizabeth. On the right is Mary. You have Elizabeth who is married and has been married for a really long time. And you have Mary who's just engaged. You have Elizabeth who's about to be an older mother. She's, she's been alive for decades now. She's going to be a wise older mother. You have Mary who's going to be a young mother in her teenage years. You have Elizabeth who's been faithful. Luke chapter 1 says her and Zechariah were faithful and God called them righteous. They they strived to do what was right for for their family and the eyes of God. And you have Mary in her young years just now proving herself. You have Elizabeth who is leaving fear and shame. What does that mean? Because she was a woman in this day and age, she had no rights. She had no voice. Her husband was the head of the house, and he was looked to as a leader. And being a woman was a pejorative, marginalized term and lifestyle to live. And so the only thing that she felt she could give, and many women in that culture, were to have children, to provide life, to be part of the community by adding more people to the community. And because she was barren, she carried shame because she wasn't a mom. But now that she's pregnant, she's about to leave the fear and the shame of being childless. And now Mary, her fear is just beginning with her pregnancy. What is Joseph going to think? What are people going to think? What does this look like? Then you have Elizabeth, who is comforting to Mary. Remember I said that Mary went and spent three months with her? Elizabeth, being older and wiser, was comforting to Mary. And Mary needs the comforting. Elizabeth, her son would be called John. Luke chapter 1 verse 13 says, you're going to have a son and you're going to name him John. He becomes John the Baptist, the one who prepares the way. And Mary, in Luke chapter 1 verse 31, it said you're going to have a child and you will name him Jesus. And Jesus becomes the way. Why did I just do that? Why did we just unfold the story in that manner? Because you see the spectrum of the two characters. Old and young. Proven, unproven. Leaving shame. Coming into fear and shame. And to me, that's a microcosm of Timberlake Church whether you're watching online at a campus or right here in the room there's a diversity of age there's a diversity of background a family of origin of education but no matter where you are on that spectrum no matter which character you align with more god is calling all of us to be fearless in our obedience of god and some of you in the room it's i know some of you really well i'm not fearless i'm not afraid of anything i'll do anything all of us have a friend like that, right? So my friend, his name was Jason. We were in college. Uh, Jason would do anything. And uh, I think we went to the hospital 25 times in college uh, for Jason, just for Jason. Um, Jason had this vice. His vice was, and we all knew it, and somehow J- Jason was just socially unaware of this vice. If you said the phrase, I dare you, Jason had to do it. There was something. It was like morally wrong to not do it. I have to do it. One time we were at a restaurant, and I took half, well, almost half, of a pepper shaker, and I dumped out the pep- pepper, made it on line, and said, snort that. Because that's what you do when you're 20 years old. You do stupid things. Jason's like, no, that's dumb. I'm not going to do that. I said, Jason, snort it. He goes, no, I can't. I looked at my friends, and I said, I dare you. <laughs> he snorted it. This kid just did everything. But there's some things about us that we are fearless about that are unhealthy. So before we talk about unhealthy, fearless obedience, there are some things that are unhealthy for us to be fearless about. One of those is to be fearlessly reckless. Our recklessness is not something to celebrate. Some of us are reckless with our food, our consumption, the way we go about eating. We'll eat whatever we want for two days and fast for eight days, and you put your body through so much because of a lack of discipline, we're reckless. Maybe we're reckless with our finances and you gamble. You buy properties. You do this. Maybe you're gambling on, on sports over the weekends. And, and sometimes you win and most times you don't. You become reckless with your finances. Maybe, maybe you're reckless with relationships because people just come and go. Right? That's the way I was brought up. Relationships come and go. Boyfriends come and go. Girlfriends come and go. And we've lived this life and some of us might be reckless when it comes to sex. As, as Ben and I meet with a lot of couples in our church, uh, there, there are times you have to look at somebody who is having sex outside of their marriage and say, one, morally, scripturally, but do you understand what you're doing is, by having sex outside of the home, along with those other things, you are putting your wife or husband's life in danger. Because sometimes we're reckless with our life. It's also not healthy to be reckless in our apathy. And I know, you know, it's very popular right now to say, well, I'm not Republican or Democrat, and I'm not this, and I'm not that, and we're, I don't even watch the news anymore, and I can't even handle it anymore. And so we're going to be neutral, but that neutral apathy at times in certain areas of our life can lead to hopelessness. And we don't have the right to be hopeless in light of a God who sent His Son to be the hope of the world. We can't be fearless in our apathy, and we can't be fearless in our disobedience. Some of you are already, I mean, I'm wired like this, some of you are wired like this just to be a rebel, right? Just to be a contrarian to whatever is being done. But what's the definition of that? Knowing what to do and not doing it. Do you know that's also a definition of Sin knowing what to do, and not doing it. It's like, I just don't understand how my kids, at times, see my wife, not as a human, but a dishwasher. I'm like, there's a sink, there's water. Wash the plate yourself. It's just the right thing to do. And their reaction's like, oh my gosh, this is so hard. The water's too hot. I'm like, are you kidding me? If that's the hardest thing you have to do today, you have a great life. It's just the right thing to do. Some of us just don't want to pay the price to be obedient. And if we're not careful, we take shortcuts. And Maybe you have problems keeping a job or staying in the same house or staying in a relationship. And let me pose this question to you. Could it possibly be that the issue is not with all of the bosses that were horrible to you or all of the homes that fell through your hands or the relationships you couldn't keep? could it be possible that the problem might be us? J.R.R. R. Tolkien, who's one of my favorite writers, authors, and the movies are okay too, but uh, he says this. He says, A man that flies from his fear may find that he has only taken a shortcut to meet it. And we create these patterns in our life because of disobedience. So what does it mean now, getting into the Word, to be fearlessly obedient, to walk in obedience? Number one, a wholehearted interaction with God. Wholehearted interaction with God. What does that mean? It means a ministry of presence. I am present in this relationship with God. Now some of you might just be starting that journey. You might be here and say, I don't even know God. I don't know who this Jesus is. It's okay. You're in the perfect place. Because we believe everybody's on a journey of faith. And if you're just starting your journey, do you know that God really wants to have an interaction with you? Do you know that Scripture tells us that nobody can come to know the Father unless the Spirit of God draws them and woos them in? Because there are times that God pursues the relationship. God pursues the interaction. My dad tells, tells us stories. When he was a teenager, he was raised in uh, Lower East Side of Manhattan, New York City. And, uh, and, you know, he's a street kid in the 60s and 70s, and it was a pretty rough area. And, and, and New York City was very different back then. It was run with prostitution and drugs, and, and it's not as nice vacation spot like it is now. And uh, he said even though his mom was in the Caribbean, in Puerto Rico, He said, there were times I would have encounters on the street of New York City, thousands of miles away. He tells multiple stories of being on the street and him introducing himself and somebody saying, you know what, I know your mother. He's like, what? My mother's on an island in the middle of the Caribbean. How do you know my mom? I don't know, but I know your mom, and you know, she's praying for you. My dad was a heroin addict as a teenager in New York City. He's like, how in the world did this happen? But he looks back and he knows that God was pursuing him. Because he, he had a mother who was praying for him. But there are other times that wholehearted interaction with God is us pursuing God. It's us putting ourselves in position to interact with God. The reason why I use that word interaction, because it means it takes multiple people, it takes multiple people to work through the relationship. And here you have Mary and Elizabeth and Gabriel wrestling through this interaction with Gabriel. Wrestling through this interaction because it's wholehearted. Obedience takes a relationship with God. And without relationship with God, it's just a bunch of rules. God wants our heart. Number two is to trust the process. Write that down. Trust the process. I know that can be hard for some of us because we struggle with the word trust. Trust. And others of us are too too impatient to really wrestle with the word process, much less the actual timeline of process. We have to trust the process of God. Remember I told you Zechariah was struck mute? He was mute whenever the angel came to him because he was questioning the angel. But he had to trust that the same God who struck him mute was the same God that when he was completed would give him his voice back. How many of us at times feel like the process we're in nobody can actually hear us we feel like nobody can hear our voice we feel like alone is god really with me is god really for me zachariah had to trust god with the process his wife elizabeth is now pregnant she's older do you know when she got pregnant luke chapter one says that she stayed in seclusion for five months found out she was pregnant, and stayed in seclusion for five months. All my friends, when they find out they're pregnant, they tell everybody. They say, I'm nine days pregnant. (laughs) It's like a little too early, okay? Five months? And when I was wondering why she waited five months, because Luke chapter 1 doesn't tell us why, I thought of some friends of ours who've lost several children over the years. And just now are in their sixth month, and she's just a tiny woman, and nobody knows she's pregnant, except for a couple of people, because she's afraid. Is it really going to come to completion? And here we have Elizabeth in seclusion for five months, and yet, you know what she says? The same God who's allowing me to be a mother is the same God who's going to remove the shame of being barren. And then you have Mary. What does she do when she finds out she's pregnant? She runs away. She runs away to her cousin's house and stays there for three months to find comfort. And she comes to this place that is beautiful. And what we're about to read is called the Magnificat. It's it's her saying how magnificent God is because she finally embraced the process. And it starts with Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1 and she's talking to Mary in verse 46. And she says this, She says, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. We're going to stop right there for a second. How many promises are you holding on to? How many things are you waiting to come to fruition? And in that process, do we trust that God is with us and for us? And if we do, that we are blessed. And Mary's response to what Elizabeth said is this. She's in the middle of the process, and yet her faith is saying, God is going to see me through. I'm going to trust God in the process. My heart is going to give glory and honor to God, even though I'm not done with the process yet. Can we, in the middle of our hard times, in the middle of our kids being wayward, in the middle of us losing our jobs, in the middle of our dreams feeling like they're falling apart, trust that the same God who called us, and is trying to move in us is the same God who will see it to completion if we will meet Him there. You know, there's a popular phrase in, in pop culture: "Jesus, take the wheel." It's from a country song. Jesus, take—I won't finish it because I, I can't get there. And, uh, and so now it's this phrase that people say when they're like, "Oh, I don't know what to do. Throw my hands up." Jesus, take the wheel. The problem is, it doesn't really match up theologically. Because Jesus doesn't put you in a vehicle to drive and then say, okay, I'm going to drive it for you. No. We're called to drive it. Even when it feels like the wheels are coming off, it's the vehicle, the family, the business, the marriage that God has given you. And we can't say, Jesus, take the wheel and be passive. Jesus is like, wait a minute, put your hands on the wheel and I'll just be with you through the process. So in light of that analogy, I thought I'd quote a race car driver, Jeff Gordon. He says this, I don't think what makes a great race car driver is a fearless person. I think it's somebody that is comfortable being behind the wheel of something that's somewhat out of control. Jesus isn't taking the wheel. He's asking you to take the wheel and trust that he's with you in the process. Proverbs 29, 25 says this, Fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Trust the process. So, wholehearted interaction with God. Trust the process. And the number three, stay faithful to completion. Stay faithful to completion. God's already meeting us at the finish line of whatever he's calling us to. Can we be faithful to that? And here's what's important. In both of the stories, these parallel stories of Elizabeth and Mary, Luke chapter 1 verse 13, They're given the the call to name their son John. Verse 31, Mary's received and accepted the call to name her son Jesus. And on the eighth day, they both have a day of reckoning. Because in Jewish culture, the eighth day is the day of circumcision. Let me tell you something about, about circumcision without getting graphic for you. It's a day of reckoning. There's no going back. You're all in. And on that day when the ceremony happens, Elizabeth is there and she's not with her husband. It's not like today where everybody's in the same room celebrating together because women were considered a lower class. She's by herself and her family asked her, what are you going to name the baby? She said, John. And they said, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why don't you name him Zechariah after his father? Have you ever been doing something that God told you to do <laughs> and your family's like, what are you doing? That doesn't make any sense. That's not logical. So you know what they did? They did something worse. They left the room, and they went to her husband, the real decision maker. What do you want to name your son? Mindful, they're not in the same room. Zechariah, because he can't speak, he writes on a tablet, John. And they were amazed. Why were they amazed? Because the husband and wife actually agreed on something. No. No. (laughs) No. They were amazed because they weren't in the same room, had the same name. Why? Because they both were completing the task of obedience. Not just carrying the baby, but naming the baby John. And then Mary on the eighth day, circumcision of her baby, she names the baby Jesus. Can you imagine her simple act of disobedience? It could have been, Jerome, take the wheel. Benjamin take the wheel. No. She was obedient to completion. And how many times do we not trust the process? And right before the end, we take control back. And we don't finish it out. When I was 18 years old, I wanted to go skydiving. I love doing crazy stuff. And I'd bungee jump, skydive, love skiing, double diamonds. I mean, I love that kind of stuff. And then I got married. My wife's like, that life is over. And so, um, if life insurance doesn't cover it, you're not doing it. So, um, but I was 18 years old, and I was so excited. I got 12 of my friends together. and We're going skydiving, and it took a couple months, and we didn't tell our parents, because we're smart. And the night before, we all decided, wait a minute, we should probably tell our parents in case we don't come back. (laughs) What if something happens, and they don't know where to find us? So the night before, we're all telling our parents, and everybody's more worried about what my mom thought. My mom's super conservative, and my mom's funny, and she's crazy. And I sat down with my mom and said, Mom... Uh, we're we're going to go skydiving, skydiving tomorrow. She said, like, What's that? Well, you know, it's where you get in a plane, you jump out. Ay, Dios mío, Lord God, no. She goes, Mijo, I knew your white friends were going to kill you one day. <laughs> I was like, Ma, don't be racist, Ma. No, it was my idea. It was I organized it. She goes, What? She goes, Mexicans don't jump out of planes, mijo. We, we just don't jump out of planes. I said, Mom, I'm going to do it. Oh, okay. Next day we show up. We go through the training, three four hours. It's awesome. It's exactly what he imagined it to be. And then they bring out all the professionals we're going to tandem jump with, all 12 of us. And to a person, it was these guys who were tall, good looking. They were in shape. They had long hair. They had the oak. They looked just like the movies. And then it w- I was the last one, and my guy didn't show up. And when he finally did, I think he was the mechanic. <laughs> because he wasn't tall and he wasn't young, we'll just leave it at that. And he's wearing those little 80s coaches' shorts that go to like right here. <laughs> and he's got a big beer gut that was super firm. How do I know it was firm? Because it was planted right here in my lower back. That's how I know. White t-shirt with pit stains and an orange mustard stain from eating a hot dog right before he came out. We go to the planes for the, you know, orientation of the airplane. And everybody's getting to sit in the seats and they're touching every part of the plane. You know what my guy does? My guy does this. And it's sad What I can tell you in 30 seconds. Son, here's what's going to happen. You're going to sit right there. I'm going to strap it right behind you. It's going to be a little snug, but we're going to be okay. Then we're going to step out of the plane. And when I tell you to, we we're going to jump. See you in an hour. There has to be more than this. I've been playing this for months. And all my friends are getting the tour. And I'm sitting there with nothing. Jump out of the plane. After about five seconds, I forget... About the beard, gut, right in my back. Can't feel it anymore. And we get all the way down, and we land, and we completed the jump, and it was awesome. It was amazing. We go to lunch afterwards, everybody's on a high, and say, Hey, remember when, when, you, when your guy jumped with you, and then he had you do this, and you flew through the air? And All my friends are like, No, we didn't, we didn't actually do that. Or How about when you got to pull your own chute? Wasn't that amazing? And all my friends are like, Oh, our guy didn't let us do that. How about when, I got to, when you get to land, and you got to pull the levers and just land by yourself? And, and I know he was in my ear telling me what to do the whole way, but I got to do it. And my friends looked at me like, we didn't experience the same jump that you had. See, the truth is, it feels like that in God sometimes. The aesthetics don't match our perception of how it should work. But he's in our ear whispering, and he's like, I'm going to have you pull the lever, I'm going to have you land. I'm with you the entire way. Because that's the adventure of being obedient in God. And who better to model that for us than Jesus, who completed his assignment of obedience. And then it says this. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Obedient. I know we think of Jesus as King and Lord, but Jesus, when he took on flesh, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, therefore, after obedience, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus modeled completing the task. Our job is to have this interaction with God at the level that you have it, to trust the process of what God's doing in you and through you, and to be faithful so that God can complete and that we are at the finish line with Him. Thank you for listening to the Timberlake Church Podcast. Stay connected with us by visiting TimberlakeChurch.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. (laughs) you <laughs>